Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, that passage we just read. Matthew chapter 22. And as you're getting there, uh, I've got a question for you. What is the best wedding that you've ever attended? We are now approaching, if not already in, wedding season, right? Some of us have approximately 14 weddings to be at this summer. Some of us have already been to a few of them. So some of you might be saying, the one I don't have to go to. That's my favorite kind of wedding. But I want you to think about the ones that you have been to in the past. What was the best, most enjoyable experience at a wedding. For me, it was the wedding of a good friend of mine. He, he married into a pretty wealthy family, like Fortune 500 level wealthy. And since the bride's family generally pays for the wedding, this wedding was like nothing that I have ever experienced before. Uh, they didn't just have food, they had foods. So you got to pick the genre of cuisine you wanted to eat at the wedding. So like one corner was like southern comfort food, like barbecue, mac and cheese, that type of thing. In another corner, there was like Tex-Mex food, tacos and the like. And then another corner, there was like Asian fusion that was like nothing I've ever had before. Just like a fancy food court, but it was all free. That was the wedding. Uh, There was a bartender that they had flown in from California, which I didn't even know that was a thing you could do, Uh, but you can. There was a bartender that they flew in, and and I've got to say they were correct in their decision to fly him in because he made an old-fashioned that was pretty close to perfect, I would say. Uh, For dessert, this was also something I had never seen before. There was this like ornate looking trough that was probably about the width of this room. And in the trough were hundreds of gourmet cake pops that were like planted in the trough. And they were planted in real grass. It was the most Willy Wonka thing I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. Like I, they had real grass to plant fake desserts. Like I just, I had never seen anything quite like that. The, the wedding, just beginning to end, was an absolutely unforgettable experience. It was amazing in every way, to the point that that wedding was a little over a decade ago, and still occasionally I will find myself like daydreaming about being at that wedding. I've, I find myself wishing that I could be back there once again. So no offense to you if I'm coming to your wedding this summer, but I just don't know that you're going to top that wedding. I'm not even sure you should try to top that wedding. It was insane in every way. But sometimes, too, I think about that wedding when I think about how in the scriptures, repeatedly, God describes eternity as being something like a wedding reception, 
a wedding banquet. We see this all throughout the scriptures. And something you should know about wedding banquets back in the day is that they were massive celebrations. Most weddings actually spanned across multiple days, often an entire week for a wedding. A full week of eating and drinking and dancing and celebrating. Weddings were a big deal in their culture, even more so than in ours. Some cultures today still have weddings like this. And that is the imagery that God uses to describe what eternity with him will be like. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those very passages, a place in the scriptures where Jesus compares the new heavens and the new earth to a massive wedding celebration. So as we talk through it, I want you to have that picture in your mind, cake pops and all, okay? That's what I want you to picture in your mind's eye as we go through this story. So just as a recap to kind of catch you up to where we are at this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus and his disciples have been at the temple where Jesus has been teaching the crowds as well as engaging in some sort of direct confrontation with the temple establishment and the chief priests, the the elders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. They do not like what Jesus is doing and saying as of late. And Jesus does not like what they've made out of the temple and people's faith. So the feeling is somewhat mutual between Jesus and the religious leadership. But all of that sets the stage for Jesus to tell them yet another parable. This one is about a king who invites people to a wedding for his son and about their responses to that invitation. So look with me, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, them being the religious leaders here, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So here's the way it would work in the ancient world. Excuse me. When your son was engaged to be married, you would send out a formal wedding announcement telling everyone about the engagement and letting them know that a wedding was forthcoming. But because weddings were such a massive thing to prepare for and pull off, you wouldn't yet know exactly when the wedding would be. So the first invitation was kind of like a save the date, but without the date. That was what happened. Initially, you would send out, you would say, hey, we're going to have a wedding. I'd love for you to be there. You would know that the wedding was going to happen in the near future and that another invitation was forthcoming. So we're also told that this isn't just any wedding. It is a wedding for the king's son. So all weddings were a big deal in the ancient world, but this one would have been on another level entirely. I mean, just think about it. The the king has nearly unlimited resources at his disposal. He and the family are going to spare no expense in the celebration that they are about to put on for their son. I would imagine something like the wedding that I mentioned a few minutes ago, except exponentially bigger and better. This wedding is likely going to encompass the entire city, the whole village, a town's whole population, eating and drinking and celebrating for an entire week. Massive ordeal, massive celebration. If you lived in the city, you would not want to miss this wedding. And because it was a wedding for the king's son, it would have been unthinkable for you to turn down the invitation. Missing the wedding would come across as a direct snub to the king and the king's family. Plus, what legitimate excuses could you possibly have for missing such a party? Uh, You might say, well, I've got to work. Okay, but the entire city has shut down for the wedding. Who exactly are you buying from or selling to, right? 
well, well I've got better things to do. Uh, it's a wedding put on by the wealthiest family in town and they've invited you. No offense, but I can almost guarantee you, you do not have something better to do than be at this wedding. There aren't many legitimate reasons to miss a celebration like this one, which is why what we read about in verse three seems so baffling in the context of the story. It says that the king sent out his representatives to tell people that the party was ready, but people refused to come. So a, a similar parallel parable in the Gospel of Luke says that they actually made various excuses for why they couldn't come to the wedding. One person said, I've bought a field and I have to go see it. Another one said, well, I've bought some oxen and I need to go try them out. Another one said, I've gotten married, so I can't be there. Now, you should know that in context, each of these excuses would have been absolutely, obviously bogus in the ancient world. So no one would go buy a field without going to see it first. No one would buy oxen without knowing if they were any good to purchase. And even getting married, okay, bring your wife to the party. She's going to love it. Free date night, right? Like just bring her to the whole thing. The point is that these people in the story invited to the party are finding reason after superficial reason to excuse themselves from attending. That's the idea. So then, verse 4, then he, the king, sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So, so this time the king goes into sales pitch mode, right? He even tries to entice them with the details on the menu. He says, hey, did, did I mention we're serving steak? Like the whole cow, did I mention how fat the cows are that we butchered for this party? Personally, I've never had oxen, but I'm guessing it's amazing. The king says, here's what you're missing out on. Are you sure you don't want to come enjoy all of this with us? And just as a side note here, I'd just like to point out that evidently to Jesus himself, a party is not a party unless it includes steak. I'm just saying I think we should be obedient to Jesus in this area of our life especially if it's an imparty, a party that you're inviting me to. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Then I want you to look at the response to this second attempt, this second invitation from the king, verse 5 in the passage. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. So that phrase there in verse 5, they paid no attention, it could be more literally translated, they did not care. They were completely disinterested in the invitation altogether. So listen, here, Jesus shows us even more about the heart posture of these invited guests. It's not just that they've got a lot going on and they can't be there. It's that they don't want to be there. They could not care less about the king, could not care less about the son, could not care less about the wedding that they've been invited to. They turn up their noses at every bit of it. Some of them even go a step further than that. Look at verse 6 with me. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So what an absolutely bizarre response to receiving a wedding invitation, right? Murdering the people delivering the invitation? What type of person would do something like that? But within the context of Matthew as a whole, you've got to remember, this is very reminiscent of the parable that Jesus told right before this one. If you were here last Sunday... 
where, where a landowner kept sending representatives to his vineyard to collect fruit, and the tenants of that vineyard kept beating and killing the people that he sent to them. And last week, we talked about how that is a nod, it's an allusion to the Old Testament prophets, people that God sent to the nation of Israel over and over again to call them to repentance. And not only did Israel not repent when they showed up, they often turned on and beat and killed the prophets who were calling them to repentance. So the invitees to this party don't want to come to the party, and they're evidently very angry about being invited to it in the first place. This mirrors the posture of the chief priests and the elders in Jesus' day. So as bizarre of a response as that is in the context of the story, it's bizarre because Jesus is trying to show these religious leaders something about themselves, something about their own mindset. He's saying, do do you see how absurd your posture is right now? The God of the universe is inviting you to a celebration where everybody eats, everybody has a good time, and everybody gets forgiven and freed from their sin. And not only are you disinterested in showing up, you are angry that someone would invite you in the first place, such that you are silencing and eliminating the people that I send to invite you to it. This is the very core of the problem that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. But because they've not only rejected his invitation, but now beaten and killed the people he sent to invite them, the tone of the, sh- of the story now shifts a bit. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, I would guess that this response from the king probably makes at least a few of us in the room uncomfortable at least a bit uncomfortable, especially when we know that the king is meant to represent God in the story. But at the same time, I I do think we need to understand that that anyone listening to the story at the time would have thought of this as an entirely logical response. In the ancient world, kings were expected to respond to force with force. They were even more expected to respond to unwarranted force with force. So remember, he has just invited people to a wedding for his son where he is going to bankroll their partying for a week and they have responded by murdering the people he sent to them. So anyone hearing this part of the story in Jesus' day wouldn't have been at all shocked at the response of the king. They probably would have nodded in affirmation. Plus, let's not forget, this is a parable, right? So almost all of it is figurative. So the point isn't that God really wants to murder someone or set anything on fire. The point is that God responds justly to injustice, especially injustice against those who represent him. He's issuing judgment on this depraved and unprompted murderous posture of the people he invited to his party. That's the idea at work in this point of the passage. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So, notice this next part, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay, so whatever you do, do not miss 
how beautiful a picture of the heart of God this part of the story is. People that thought they were too good for the party refused to come, but one thing you should know about God is that God is going to have his party. The celebration is going to happen one way or another. So he sends out his representatives with instructions to go out to, I think the King James Version says, the highways and the hedges, which is one of the only times I prefer the King James Version of the Bible, right? The highways and the hedges. Go out into the streets and invite anyone and everyone to this wedding party. Anybody who wants to come, those on the street corners, all the various corners of society, all the various income levels, God wants everybody who wants to come there. I even love that it says the king invites the good as well as the bad. So so you, upstanding citizen who works really hard and has a difficult time ever letting loose, there's a week-long party and I want you to be there. You, uh, guys robbing that person in the alleyway, uh, I, I want you to stop robbing that person, but I want you to come to the party. And also there's old fashions. I flew in a bartender, like it's gonna be awesome. You're gonna wanna be there. And also the drinks are free, so no reason to take people's money, right? So he's inviting everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. This king is not going to let a handful of wedding avoiders stop the celebration of the century. It will happen just the same. His wedding hall will be full. Okay, so just for a second here, real personally, I need to ask you a question. Is this how you see God? Is this how you see God? Like like when you picture what God is like in your mind, does he look and sound like this? Is he the type of person who is desperate to celebrate and wants as many people there to enjoy the celebration as possible? Some of us have been sold a version of God who would never behave like this. In our minds, maybe God doesn't even like parties in the first place, much less insist on throwing one for people. Can can you see your vision of God doing something like this? I would submit to you that if you cannot, we may need to realign our vision of God with what we find in the scriptures. Jesus is about to say some very difficult things in just a second about the people invited to the wedding, but let's not rush past and miss this part of the passage. God is a king who is throwing the party of the century And he wants as many people there for it as possible. That's the God we worship. That's who God is according to the scriptures. And honestly, this parable would be a lot easier to teach if it ended there. But it doesn't. Let's take a look with me at verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests... He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Man, that's a rough ending to a story, isn't it? I don't know that Disney is buying the rights to this one anytime soon. 
Or maybe they would change the ending if they did. They do sometimes do that with stories that they choose to use. Um, The king enters the party where he has invited anyone and everyone to come celebrate. He spots someone there, quote, without wedding clothes on. And in response, he has that person kicked out of the party into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which everywhere else that Jesus uses language like that in the Gospels is a description of hell, eternity separated from God. That is intense, right? So what do we make of this part of the story? Is God just a real stickler for the dress code? Is he out here just tricking people into attending a party so that he can then give them the boot for not wearing the right type of clothes when they're there? What in the world is this part of the story about? Well, at least in regards to the particulars of what's happening, it's honestly difficult to know for sure the dynamics at play that Jesus has in mind. So some biblical scholars have noted that in a situation like this in the ancient world, a king would often provide wedding clothes for those that didn't have the means to afford them. And if this man wasn't wearing those clothes, it would mean that he refused what was offered to him. It also could be that the king actually lowered the expectations of a dress code to accommodate for the types of people that ended up showing up. In that case, it would mean that this man chose to wear something still that was deliberately insulting to the king and the nature of the party. Truthfully, it is difficult to know with 100% certainty exactly what the situation was that Jesus was imagining. But whatever the particular details are, I, I think one thing is pretty clear from the passage. The man in the story has no explanation for why he isn't dressed differently. Do you see that in the story? So in the passage, Jesus says that the man was, quote, speechless when the king asked him about it. In other words, he, he offers no defense, no reason for why he is dressed the way that he was. If he wore the only thing that he had, he could have said that. If if he couldn't afford anything better at the time, he could have said that to the king. If he didn't know what the dress code was exactly, he could have said that as an explanation. But instead, we're told he says nothing at all. He seems to know exactly what the problem is. He was just hoping that no one would notice, that it wouldn't matter. He has arrived at the wedding, but he has tried to enter the party on his own terms. He is attempting to enjoy all the benefits of the party that the king is throwing, but without any of the expectations of the king. And because of that, he gets kicked out of the party. So we might ask, what is the significance of this story for our day and age? I think we could put it like this. This is a parable about two different types of people one that we might call wedding avoiders and one that we might call wedding crashers. One type of person who will do everything they can to avoid attending the party and another who attends the party but on their own terms and for their own purposes. I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about these two groups of people from the story and see if we can draw out some connections and some parallels to our day and age, see how they show up in today's society. First, let's talk about wedding avoiders. Here's how I might define people in this category. 
Wedding avoiders are people too disinterested and preoccupied to participate in God's kingdom. Too disinterested, too preoccupied to participate in God's kingdom. They are people that the king invites to the wedding, but who simply aren't interested in being there in the first place. And in the story, they offer some superficial reasons for this. For one person, it's work. Another person has just made a big purchase that he needs to attend to. As we mentioned, the Gospel of Luke actually has someone offer a third type of excuse that he recently got married. Family, in other words, is his reason for not attending this party. Work, life, and family. I don't think it's any coincidence that today, when I hear people talk about why they don't have time for kingdom-oriented things in their life, the reasons they often give are work, life, and family. When I ask people, for instance, why they haven't plugged into a local church wherever they are, they'll often say things like, well, work is just so busy and it takes so much out of me, I don't really feel like I have energy for that. Or, well, I'm only going to be in this city for a year or two before my job sends me to somewhere else, so there's really no use in plugging into a local church for that amount of time. Work is the reason given. When I hear people talk about why they can't live on mission, building relationships with their coworkers and neighbors and friends and classmates that don't know Jesus, they'll often say that life in general is just too busy and too hectic for that sort of thing. Life is the reason they give. When people have a hard time prioritizing regular time with other followers of Jesus in the context of something like a life group, one of the more common reasons I hear given is that of family. They'll say things like, well, we just want to make sure that we prioritize family time. Now, I just want to be very clear, those things, work, life, family, are not bad things. They're not bad things at all. I would argue they're good things. But when those things are used as ongoing reasons for not participating in God's kingdom, that becomes somewhat problematic. There are seasons where those types of things do indeed limit how much energy and attention and time can be focused on kingdom things. For instance, quite a few people in our church have recently had babies or about to have a baby. When you have a baby, that is going to eat up a lot of your time and attention and energy and bandwidth for a little while. That's very understandable. For some of us, there, there are seasons where our jobs are especially demanding of us. My parents, for instance, are accountants. So there's about four months out of every year leading up to April 15th that they don't have a whole lot of extra bandwidth for anything during that season. All of that is understandable. There are going to be seasons where there are limitations on your time and effort and attention and bandwidth. All of that makes sense. But to me... The concerning thing is when we perpetually have some sort of reason for non-participation in the kingdom. So, so when we're young and single, it's that we really want to use that time to travel or go and do fun things with our friends. And then when we're married, it's that we really want to focus on our relationship with our spouse. And then when we have young kids, it's that it's really important for our kids to stay on their schedule. And then when your kids are older, it's that you really want your kids to have all the opportunities and extracurriculars that they can participate in. And then when your kids are out of the house, you want to travel again because they're out of the house. And then when you retire, it's that you really want to use that time to relax. And before you you know it, it's the end of your life, and at every stage, you have excused yourself from active participation in the kingdom. 
And remember, in the parable, it wasn't that these people really wanted to be involved in the kingdom. They really wanted to be at the party, and they were just struggling to figure out how to make it work. That wasn't the case. It's actually that they were disinterested in attending in the first place, which led to them making excuse after excuse as to why they couldn't be there. I think that distinction is so important for us to realize in the story. There are some of us in the room right now that have an earnest desire to more actively participate in kingdom things. And we are just struggling right now in the season we're in to figure out how to make it work. I don't think Jesus is critiquing those people at all in this parable. I think he is critiquing those of us who are secretly kind of glad to have excuses. Because if we're completely honest, we're just not all that interested in kingdom participation in the first place. We're just not all that interested in plugging into a local church. We're just not all that interested in building relationships with people that don't know Jesus. We're just not all that interested in sacrificing any amount of family time to prioritize other followers of Jesus in our life and relationships with them. If we were just completely transparent about it, we'd just rather not do any of those things. Which means that the excuses we offer aren't so much legitimate reasons as they are cover for our general lack of desire. It's actually that we're just not all that interested in the party in the first place. That is the posture of wedding avoiders in the passage. But then, in the story, there are also wedding crashers. Here's how I would define wedding crashers. They are people drawn to the benefits of the kingdom, but not the costs. Drawn to the benefits of the kingdom, but without the costs. So remember the posture of the man at the end of the parable. He was at the party. A party evidently sounded great to him. Presumably, he was having a great time at the party. But, and here's the kicker, he insisted on being there on his own terms. In his own way. He did not want to adjust anything about his own life in order to be there. Not even his outfit. He didn't want to yield to any particular expectations the king had of him while he was there. He just wanted to enjoy the benefits of being there. And these people exist in present day as well. So there there are people that I know that are actually incredibly drawn to the benefits of life in God's kingdom. They love that they can show up here on Sunday, for instance, and hear songs that encourage them and set their minds on Jesus. They love that they can hear teachings that help them grow in their understanding of Jesus. They love that they can be a part of a community that welcomes them and checks in with them and sacrifices for them and serves them and make them feel loved as a result. They are big fans of all of those things and more about the kingdom. They'll even talk regularly about how amazing all of those things are and how thankful they are for all of those things. But they want all of that on their own terms. They want the ability to keep all of that as best as they can at arm's length. They only want it insofar as they don't have to yield to any expectations of them while they're there. Jesus, I would love to be there at the party, but if it's cool with you, I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. 
I love how invested other people are in my life, but, but don't ask me to adjust my daily rhythms to invest in other people's lives. That feels a little bit draining to me. I, I love how vulnerably other people share in my life group, but I'm not going to share. I'm a really private person. I love how other followers of Jesus are so consistently building relationships with non-believers and inviting them to come around, but I'm not going to do that. I'm a little bit too introverted for that. A couple weeks ago, Eric talked about how sometimes it is like we want a kingdom, but without the king. We would love to experience the joys and the benefits of the party that Jesus is throwing, but we're not exactly big fans of the king throwing the party. We don't love how kingly he thinks he is. We don't love how he walks around like he owns the place, almost like it's his party or something. I think that is precisely the type of posture that Jesus is addressing here at the end of the parable. Those who want to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, but without the king and without any of the things that he might ask of them along the way. And listen, I will acknowledge that this is a tough sell. It's a tough sell because of the culture we live in. In part, it's tough because at least a majority of us in the room probably grew up in America, Right? We grew up hearing a lot about the individual rights that we have, the freedoms that we have. We are discipled by our society and by their values to believe that we should have the freedom to do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it at all times. Endless opportunity with minimal demands of me. To many people, that is the American way, right? And really, it has been since the very beginning. Uh, back in the day, the Brits asked us to pay taxes, and we responded by throwing their tea in the harbor. <laughs> That's how we feel about your demands of us. We're throwing, and then we're going to call it a party after we do it. We're going to throw it in the water. We're going to call it a party. So even today... It's almost like whenever someone makes a demand on our time or effort or energy or money, it's like we can just see King George's face before our eyes, right? And we're like, I must start a revolution against this. I think that's our inherent response. We're discipled to think that way about ourselves. But listen, we hinted at it week one of this section of Matthew. The kingdom of God operates differently than other kingdoms, even in the kingdom of America. And here's what we often forget, or, or maybe just don't realize fully in the first place. Think with me about all of those benefits that so many of us enjoy about the kingdom of God. So, so think with me about the people who love us and care for us and help us when we're hurting. Think about the environments that we're in where, where we can be welcomed and encouraged and prayed over. Think of the settings where we get to be honest about our imperfections and our sins and our failures and our sufferings. Think about all of that. And then I want you to ask the question, how did those environments come to exist in the first place? Wasn't it because a group of people decided to come to the king's party on his terms? Wasn't it because people were willing to make sacrifices of their time, 
their schedule, their effort, their energy, because people did make it a priority to be present, even in some times where they probably didn't inherently want to be present for us. The reason that we get to reap the benefits of the kingdom, the tangible benefits, is because other people were willing to put in the work that God prompted them to put in. Because they were willing to have demands made of them by the king. But I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. Most of those people who put in that work, who yield to those demands, don't see those things as demands at all. They see them as privileges. They think of those things as pure joy to get to do. So one of my favorite parables in the entire scriptures is a parable that Jesus tells that is also the shortest parable that there is. It's actually just one verse. We'll put it up on the screen. Matthew 13, verse 44. I think this sums up the idea that I'm getting at. Matthew 13, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So a question for you about this parable. Were there requirements for that guy to purchase the field with the treasure in it? Were there things he had to do in order to purchase the field? According to the passage, yes, right? Pretty significant demands, in fact. It says that he, quote, sold all he had in order to buy this field. I've never sold everything I have, but I would imagine there are quite a few sacrifices and logistical details that have to get worked out to do something like that, right? So, so technically, yes, there were demands for him to purchase this field. Selling all that you have probably requires some time and effort and energy in order to do. There were requirements for him to be able to do what he did. But second question, do you think he thought of them as demands? Do you think he was thinking to himself, oh, gosh, I cannot believe that I have to sell everything I have in order to buy this field. This obnoxious treasure is so demanding of my time and my effort and my energy and my resources. I hate this so much. Do you think that was his mindset? I would bet not, right? In fact, the passage says the opposite. It says that, quote, in his joy, he went and sold everything he had. That doesn't sound like drudgery to me. Doesn't sound like begrudging submission at all. In fact, it sounds like he realized that what he had to give up paled in comparison to what he was gaining. So it was a no-brainer for him. Those were simply logistical details to be sorted out so that he could gain so much more. Okay, in my experience, the difference between either a wedding avoider or a wedding crasher and a follower of Jesus is what I just described. A wedding avoider doesn't even think the field is worth a second look, right? Nope, not interested, not for me, not interested at all, I'll pass. A wedding crasher is interested in the benefits of having the field, but not in any of the cost that it would take to get it. A follower of Jesus sees that there's treasure in the field. And, and that treasure is worth more than any logistical details that need to be sorted out in order to gain that treasure. It's not even a debate. 
So yes, they do the necessary work of realigning their priorities and their time and their schedule and their effort and energy, but every bit of that feels much more like joy than it does like drudgery. It feels a lot more like gain than it feels like loss because there's treasure in that field. Let me peel back one more layer for you as we close. A lot of scholars have actually speculated here that this parable about the treasure in the field may not only be about what we do for the kingdom, it may also be about what Jesus does for us. The book of Hebrews tells us, and this is strikingly similar language here, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus gave everything he had, including his very life, to purchase the field. Jesus does not call us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. So this morning, we're going to go to the tables. We're going to remember all of that. By taking of the bread and the cup, we are going to remember just how much Jesus gave up for us. And then we're going to ask for his help in learning how to follow his footsteps. And let me just say this before we're done. Think about the last verse of the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. I want to make sure that we all hear, realize that the invitation has gone out to every single one of us. God is going to have his party. He wants everybody there. The scriptures tell us in the New Testament that he doesn't want any person to perish, but he wants them all to gain eternal life. Invitation is to all of us. The question is, will we respond to the invitation or will we turn up our noses at it? Because it requires too much of us, because it's not interesting to us, whatever the case may be. But every single one of us are invited. I pray that we all accept the invitation, not just one time, but ongoingly throughout our lives as followers of Jesus. Let me pray with us.